or the one who preached the gospel around the world, as they say Elijah would do, and then the end came because he's been dead over a quarter of a century and the end hasn't come yet. So that individual has not yet appeared on the scene because when the gospel is preached around the world by the two witnesses, then the end will come at the time that they die, or three and a half days later. So we have to be consistent. And the argument was brought up that Mr. Armstrong uh, understood the counting of the days to be exclusive to the Sunday following the seventh Sabbath after the weekly Sabbath during the Days of Unleavened Bread as opposed to inclusive counting. And uh, Mr. Armstrong went back and forth with different Hebrew scholars over and over again trying to determine whether it was inclusive or exclusive counting, which would have meant either Sunday or Monday. But the answer to me is very simple without fighting over that word and what it actually meant. It says, from that Sabbath, during days of unleavened bread, you count seven Sabbaths, and then you have Pentecost. It's count 50, not count 51. So the context itself tells you how to count it without having to worry about the Hebrew. But it gets back to, like Paul said, striving over words, whether it be one word in the New Testament about government or whether it be one word in the Old Testament about uh, Pentecost, you simply follow the context and understand what is being said. So if you count seven Sabbaths, that's 49, and 50's next. So that makes it on a Sunday. What a, and, it, and it ties in because Pentecost pictures, among other things, liberty that the Holy Spirit gives well, what is the Jubilee year? Freedom and liberty. And it's 50 years, not 51. Seven time cycles, seven times seven is 49, and the 50th is the Jubilee, not the 51st. That would throw everything askew. The numbers have to come out right, five times ten. Uh, so the Jubilee and Pentecost are counted the same. So let's understand we go through what God says of how you count it. We don't worry about whether a Hebrew word is inclusive or exclusive because the Bible is very clear in what it says in the context. So I feel very confident with Sunday as Pentecost. Count 50. I uh, received a, an email from Braddock's over in Kenya this morning, our elder over there. Uh, he's been ill, as I think I reported to you a week or so ago. Uh, but he reported that he's being treated for malaria, typhoid fever, and pneumonia all at the same time. He said he is getting better, but uh, that's, a, that's a pretty good trio to be fighting at once. So you might remember him in your prayers, and he did say thank you for prayers that have gone up in his behalf. All right, let's get to the subject for the day. Uh, I want to go to something, as I said last week, for Pentecost uh, that perhaps would be a, a little more inspiring and encouraging in some ways, but I want to go back to this government issue again today. Now, bear in mind, uh, considering the scriptures that I used last week and the ones that I plan to use today, that the Bible is full 
of verses about administering the job of service the ministry is to do with love and mercy and kindness and gentleness and all the above. Those are not the scriptures which are in question. Yes, Jeremiah 23 and Ezekiel 34 are there, and government was abused. There is no doubt about that in Worldwide Church of God. That doesn't mean every minister was an abuser. Uh, you know, let's use sound logic. There are good men, and there are bad men. There are good women, and there are bad women. There is good food, and there is bad food. Do we quit eating entirely because there is bad food? No. We need to select that which is good and get rid of that which is bad, but we don't quit eating just because there is bad food in the world. So, the logic has to be consistent. So, while I recognize very clearly that there were abuses, and I may have done some of them myself, repentance is what it is all about and doing things correctly. So, it is not those scriptures about gentleness and kindness and mercy and so on that are in question. Those who are anti-government or semi-anti-government or whatever don't use those scriptures in the way they do. Well, they use those to show that they're bad ministers and therefore we ought to do, out, do away with ministers. Or they should be toothless. Basically, that they should, what, pat babies on the head and give the prayer to ladies' tea. And that's all that they are to do, I suppose. So that's why I emphasized last week those places where Paul told Titus to rebuke sharp, sharply, to speak, exhort, and rebuke, and where he told Timothy to use all authority. So God did put power in the ministry. Let me throw another one at you that just came to mind this morning. We know we're to call no man father. Christ said that, certainly as a religious title. And yet Paul referred to the members of the church as his little children and he as their father. Try that one today and see what happens. <laughs> that would blow people away, wouldn't it? Yet Paul did it. Now I understand that he was not disobeying Christ. Uh, he was not a father in terms of a, an office or a rank, but he was speaking in a familial sense, that he was the one who brought them to, to the truth, and therefore he was kind of their father in the faith in that sense, not that he had his collar turned around and everybody had to call him father. That wasn't the case at all, like the Catholic Church, where it's a religious title. It was simply referring to family, and I don't think that contradicted what Christ had said, otherwise Paul wouldn't have done it. So it's a different sense that he used. Even Herbert Armstrong used that term sometimes, uh, referring to us as his children. Well, and we, we were in that sense. He was the one who was given a lot of truths and passed them along to us as younger and children in the faith. 
But I don't think in today's climate anyone would dare use those terms. Besides that, no one really fits that office today as, as Paul or Herbert Armstrong did. Anyway, let's go on to 2 Timothy 3, verse 15. I want to continue this line because those who would argue against government in the church, or hierarchy as they say, uh, don't use these scriptures. They just don't use them. But they're there. And they must be there for a reason. Now, I don't believe, and I've said it before, and will say it again, I'm sure, in the type of hierarchy they are describing. What they think we are teaching, or that the church is teaching, or the ministry as a whole around the world, the greater church of God, is that there's the Father, the Son, then the Apostle, and you have to go down through the pastors and the elders and the deacons, and you're buried beneath the deacon somewhere and have to go through the whole chain of authority to reach God. Now, that is not true. There is a structure. Didn't Paul say first apostles, second prophets, then pastors and teachers and so on? So there was a line of authority. Did not Paul the apostle instruct Timothy a young evangelist, and Titus, and various ones, he was in charge. And he instructed them on pay scale and various other things in the New Testament. So that was there. But as I explained to you before, the ministry on the earth should never and can never get between us and God. And I find that even though I've explained that, People still are thinking in the old terms that we're in worldwide. You have direct access to God the Father when the veil of the temple was rent in twain when Christ died, that path was opened to you. And Christ said to the New Testament church, pray to the Father in His name. So that's what we do. So there is no one between you and direct access to the Father in heaven and His Son at His side. The ministry is there more as a mother, and Paul referred to it. Jerusalem, the church, the mother of us all, is there, to, not in a line of authority down, but to the side, just as in a family, to point the children to the Father and not come between the children don't have to say, Mommy, can I speak to Daddy? They have direct access to their father at any time. And that is exactly what the government of the church should be. So don't throw back at me, as some have, that uh, we have that kind of hierarchy. That's not what it's talking about. Did they have hierarchy in Moses' time? How did they come out of Mitzrayim or Egypt? Ranks of ten... Hundreds, thousands. There was a hierarchy there. A captain of a hundred was over ten captains of ten. A captain of a thousand was over ten captains of a hundred. Right on up to Moses. That was God's way of doing things so that it wasn't a confusing mass of chaos coming out. They came out lined up in ranks, it says. God is the author of 
of order, not confusion. And we would have absolute confusion if there was not proper government in the church. Understand that to accomplish anything, someone is in charge. It has always been that way in every aspect of life. I talked about that some last week, so let's not uh, embellish it more at this point. But I want to get this across so people understand what we're saying, not what they've heard from those who don't understand government to this day. And there are groups in the church, whole organizations, who still don't understand that the order or the rank or the hierarchy in the ministry is to the side and not a direct line of authority straight down from God. They are under God's authority, no doubt, but they are not between people and God and haven't been since the veil was rent in twain. And I do understand that. Anyway, 2 Timothy 3, verse 15. And that from a child you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus or Emmanuel. Then he says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. Now, if we are told, as Paul told Timothy, preach the word, be instant in season and out of season, and as I quoted, we must live by every word of God, if you are to deliver or instruct people in every word of God, then you have to use those parts or include those parts which include reproof and correction, do you not? There has to be or that has to be done by word of Scripture right here. Otherwise, you're not doing your job. If you speak the soft and easy things, then God says you're not doing your job. What was it said about John the Baptist? What did you expect? A reed shaken in the wind? He was not. He came with power and strength. And what about Christ himself? I, didn't, I don't have that scripture down, but I read it the other day, where he says, uh, where he came teaching with great authority and power. And the Pharisees said, what's this guy? He talks like he has authority. He speaks with power. He speaks with conviction. He's not a reed shaken in the wind either. You say, yeah, but that was Jesus. That's not you. Now, wait a minute. Don't let that logic carry you away. He was the example that we were to follow in his steps. Walk as he walked, speak as he spoke, think as he thought. So if he came that way, he was setting an example for the apostles and those who would follow after to speak in the same way, with authority, with power, with conviction, even as he did. So no, by no means is any minister today Christ or anything much like him, I'm afraid. But we're still supposed to do in every respect, including speak as he spoke. Now, he showed a lot of mercy and kindness, forgiveness, healing, 
all those things. But he also was not a reed shaken in the wind. One side of what he taught was all those fruit of the Spirit, nice, gentle, loving things. But how did he approach the Pharisees? Call them snakes, whited sepulchers, whitewashed tombs, filthy cups on the inside. Those are pretty powerful words, pretty mean, nasty words, but they were true. And he used the right approach at the right time with the right people to accomplish what needed to be accomplished. So we have to be all things to all people in that sense. There has to be wisdom and understanding. Didn't Paul also say, was it Paul or was it was it James or Peter? James, I think. Which said, yeah, in the James chapter 5. Some show mercy and compassion. Others jerk out of the fire. You have to treat different people different ways. So there's a time for mercy, compassion, forgiveness, kindness. And there's also a time to kick somebody's behind. Which is the same as jerk them. <laughs> depends on which analogy you want to use at the time. Wisdom is knowing when to do which. And self-control is also a part of that. Uh, chapter 4. He continues his uh, instruction to Timothy here in 2 Timothy 4, verse 1. I charge you. In other words, this is something I'm telling you you must do. I charge you. Therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Well, this is a pretty broad picture he's painting here. Uh, not just administrative, but what he's saying is to be enacted on the stage of the universe, if you will. Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season, Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. So be patient, be long-suffering, but say it. Don't let it fall to the ground. But watch you in all things. Oh, wait a minute. Uh, verse 3 I want. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. In the end time, he says, that's the way it will be. And it is that way in the church today. Many will turn to their own ideas, leaning upon their own understanding. They did that in the time of the judges. End of judges, it talks about every man leaned to his own understanding. And those, if you read the context, were really, really bad days in Israel. And those are really, really bad days in the church today. So they'll find their own teachers, having itching ears, not those whom God has duly ordained and appointed to do it and gave instruction on how to go about it, but themselves. And they won't endure sound doctrine. Now there are some people who will hear this sermon, whether today or on tape later on or whenever, who will not like what I am reading today and read last week. They won't like it. 
How do you deny it when it's written in Scripture over and over and over again? You can deny it because you simply don't want to hear it. But it's there. Yes, those about kindness and gentleness and not being overlords are there as well. And they really go off the bat, off in the left field with the Nicolaiton thing, and we'll probably get to that. Among other things that they use is little things that are inconclusive or very hard to prove or whatever, like Hebrews thirteen seventeen, yeah, that we've already been over. But these are very clear. These are very plain. How do, how do you say it in any plainer words than what Paul is doing? Understand, Paul had enemies in the church. The Apostle Paul had enemies. Can you believe that? Here was a man taught by Christ personally three and a half years in the desert who had been appointed an apostle with the other twelve and Christ had commissioned to go to the Gentiles and to be in charge of the whole Gentile church and also overlap into the Israelite church as well even as Peter and the others overlapped into the Gentile world. But he was given a very, very high office in the church of God. And yet he named names of people who gave him great trouble and grief. So you'd think, boy, here's a man who was used to write more books of the Bible than anyone else. Someone that God inspired to preach and teach his word and to write it down for us. And yet, there were those who said Paul was whatever they said. Inept, weak, unchristian, accused him of various sins, probably, or whatever they cooked up against Paul. Now, Paul readily admitted that the things he wanted to do he didn't do, and the things he didn't want to do he did. That he had to fight his human nature day by day, beating his body into subjection. But there were those who took exception to him, took exception to what God had done with him and had done great harm to both him and the church with their negativity and their talking about Paul. There is nothing new under the sun. And there is a lot of that in the greater church of God today. Anyway, verse 4, And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned to fables. They will deny such scriptures as we are reading and say we shouldn't have a ministry or it should be a toothless one. But watch you in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of your ministry. He was a young man and we read last week he was not let them to despise his youth. And here Paul said you are to come across in a strong and powerful way in such a way that you make full proof of being an evangelist. Not mealy-mouthed, not weak, but full proof. 1 Thessalonians 12. There is no such thing. 1 Thessalonians 5.12, I'm trying to say. And we, we beseech you, brethren to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord 
and admonish you. Now there's another one that is completely opposite of what some across the greater church of God are saying today. Notice his words. Those which labor among you and are over you, as a mother is over children, to guide them, direct them. Somebody says, well, the training wheels have to come off. Certainly they do. You know what the best government is? Self-government. That's what we're all to do, is be self-governing. That does not contradict what I am saying in this series. The whole object is to get us to govern ourselves so that we control the thoughts that go through our mind and the actions of our bodies. That's why we preach and teach the Word of God is because that's what it's all about. No one is to get between you and God and your opportunity at salvation. I've never said that. And yet it is implied by some. No. You're supposed to govern yourself. I certainly hope to God, and that's not swearing, that's a prayer. But we get to the point we have self-control and are prepared, spiritually mature enough to be in the kingdom of God. That's the whole object. And the job of the ministry is to read these scriptures to you and point you to control yourself. We don't overlord you here. How often do we come to your door and inspect everything you're doing, your housekeeping, your kitchen, your cupboards, your uh, whether you got trash in the bottom of your car? Come on. We preach the Word and leave you alone. My personal management style is essentially... Somebody says there's a job needs done, or I see a job that needs done. I say, go do it. And leave you alone to go do it. I don't come looking over your shoulder all the time. You might do it a little different than I would. So what? Just get the job done. Now, depending on what it is, I may say, well, this is what we need done. And, you know, a few details about how what needs to be done. But I don't care if you work from 12 midnight till 8 a.m., or three in the afternoon till whatever. Just do the work. Get it done. Finish the job. And spiritually speaking, that's the way it's supposed to be. Tell people what needs to be done, then they go do it. Whatever God says needs to be done. And that's what we read to you. But that does not mean that we do not have authority because Paul said that uh, the ministry was over them in the Lord and there to admonish you, not just to speak gently and, and never give you instruction, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake and be at peace among yourselves. So instead of speaking negativity, which destroys trust and confidence, we should speak good things and emphasize the good and esteem the work that is there to be done highly and be at peace among yourselves. Now, who's destroying the peace? Those who would come and speak negative things, 
those who would teach different doctrines than what we have learned, those who would take away and cause division and people to become confused and separate themselves from the body. Those are the ones disturbing the peace. They need to repent of it. Okay? Because that's what this says. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. So he gives both here. Exhort, warn, but be kind, gentle, and loving. Some have compassion, others jerk out of the fire. Uh, chapter 4, verse 10. And indeed, you do it toward all the brethren which are in all Macedonia, but we beseech you, brethren, you increase more and more. Uh, no, that's not. That was from somewhere else. Second Thessalonians 3, verse 4. Let's go to one that I got right here. Chapter 3, verse 4. For truly, when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation, even as it came to pass, and you know. For this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means a tempter have tempted you, and our labor be in vain. And then he talks about Timothy being sent, and so on. So, he had an oversight here. He had a responsibility, very clearly. I wanted four, verse four uh, and five. Let's let's start with six. And that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter, because that the eternal is the avenger of all such, as we have also forewarned you and testified. For God has not called us to uncleanness, but to holiness. He therefore that despises despises not man, but God, who has given us His Holy Spirit. Same thing that God told Samuel. They're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. Anyone who is in a despising attitude is not in a godly attitude. Do you see malice and despite and anger among the fruits of the Spirit of God? Is it there? No. Think about it, brethren. If somebody is angry and negative and full of malice, negativity and gossip, are those the fruits of the Spirit of God? Well, let's call a spade a spade. What's the truth of the matter? Those are not the fruits of the Spirit of God. Who are they the fruits of? Satan, the devil and human carnal nature. That's what those are. So if you see somebody who has those attitudes, you already know that they are in the spirit of Satan, not the spirit of God. Therefore, you cannot trust anything they have to say because they're already in a satanic mode, a satanic attitude. Okay? How do I put it any clearer than that? 
Those are not the fruits of the Spirit of God. Wherever you find them. Wherever. Let's move along to Ephesians 4. And verses 11 through 15. I've already kind of quoted this. But Paul is explaining to the Ephesians what God has done in terms of government. Verse 11, And he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints. Now, over the saints, as he said earlier, means they have a commission to help perfect you, to help show you where your uh, faults, your weaknesses, your lacks, your immaturity spiritually is, and to help perfect or mature you. How do you help mature your children? You guide them, you teach them, you exhort them, you discipline them, you give them all the support they need so that they can become truly self-governing. That's your goal as a parent, to get them by the time they reach majority age to be majority mature. That's the goal. That's the purpose. You should not have to mother them or baby them all their lives. You should use God's techniques to help them become self-governing so that they can lead an upstanding life without you having to direct everything they do until they're, you're 100 and they're 80. That isn't the point. You should be able to take your hands off a little at a time and give them more and more freedom as they learn self-control. But you dare not give them too much liberty until they have that self-control or they're going to be a train wreck. Now, we should all come to the maturity of Christ. That is our goal and our purpose. But do you ever get to the point you don't need someone there as a guide, a leader, a teacher? What about it? Are God the Father and Christ going to abdicate their positions once we become spirit beings and the training wheels are off? No, that structure is going to be there forevermore. The Father will always be in charge. Christ will be the second in command. And then you have those, the bride, the apostles, Abraham, Moses, various ones, who some of them, have, their jobs have already been outlined. David is king, the apostles over the tribes, and the bride. There will always be structure there. Even though we're spiritually mature and immortal and have eternal life at that time. When do you never need a head? Would somebody like to give theirs up today? The body always needs a head. Even if the body is under control, the hands and feet and the spleen are doing whatever they're supposed to do. You still got to have a head there. There is no such thing as a headless horseman. We always need a head. Now, Christ is the head of the church. I don't know why it is that you talk about head of the church on a physical level, and people get confused and they just go berserk thinking, No, no, Christ is the head! Yes, 
All hands agree. I have no problem with that whatsoever. He's the chief cornerstone. He's the head of the corner. He's in charge of the church. He's the head of the church. But he also appointed physical heads. He has always worked through men. That's the way it's always been. We'll get to a couple of examples of that in a little bit. Uh, Luke 9, 1 to 2. Let's pick up a couple more of those and then I'll get to that. Luke 9, verse 1. Then he called his twelve disciples together. Somebody was recently quoted as saying, I think that they were only given power to anoint or something like that. What does he say here? Then he called his twelve disciples together and gave them power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. So there's a broader spectrum already of responsibilities he gave the New Testament ministry. And then they ordained others to help with that job. So it was a, a wider range of authority than some might think. 1 Corinthians 12. I don't want to belabor this, but I just the... The vast number of scriptures that we can go to to show this is amazing. And yet all these are ignored by anyone who is, to one degree or another, anti-government. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 28. And God set some in the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers, after that, miracles, gifts of healings, helps, governments, Diversities of tongues. So he gave all of these and he lists them in an order. First, second, third, and then others below that. Notice that one word, administrations. What does an administration do? It acts in an orderly fashion to carry out policies and has to have authority and control in order to do so. We overlook some of these things. What about Acts 15? The only time in the New Testament that there was anything even similar to voting was the casting of lots before Pentecost, before the Holy Spirit had even come, because Judas had done what he had done, and they had to replace him. So the apostles cast lots among themselves, not among the 120 uh, disciples there were at that time, but just among themselves. They were in control. They were in charge. They had the authority to do that. So it was not a public vote. It was a decision made among the 11 to select the 12th. And they used a method that God had used in the past. Now, once the Holy Spirit came, uh, you never see that again in the Scriptures. But here in Acts 15, without going through the whole thing, we're pretty familiar with the story. And that is when the Gentiles were allowed in the church, uh, a question came up, number one, should they be allowed? And number two, 
Did they then have to be circumcised if they came into the church? Uh, this became a very big doctrinal issue. Now, let's see how God handled it. I'll just tell you the story. You can go back and read it in detail later if you wish. Now, we have many scriptures, starting with Matthew sixteen eighteen, where Christ told Peter that Christ himself was the big rock, and Peter was the little rock, or the Petros, and that he would give him power and authority, but he had better use it correctly. And then we see Peter taking the lead in any place you see uh, church authority or church government being used. Peter always took the lead. And I, some have argued that James was the physical head, and I can use the head properly, physical head under the spiritual head Christ. In this particular case, they had a discussion among the ministry, not among the disciples, but among the ministry and the elders. And then it came down to time to make a decision about the Gentiles and about circumcision. And I think I've come to understand why James was the one who rendered this decision. But after all the discussion had been done among the ministry, not the ecclesia, if you want to use that term. It includes the ministry. They're called out too. But the example in the Bible is that the ministers discuss the doctrine, not the whole church. And then James said, after all the discussion had been made, my sentence, my judgment, my decision is that the Gentiles be there and we not trouble them with circumcision. So he gave a decision, and then they sent out word to all the churches that that was the decision, and that's what we will live by, whether you like it or not. You can read the rest of it. They sent word to all the churches that that was the decision that was made. Now, why did James make the decision instead of Peter if Peter was the physical head? I think the reason should be obvious, so it hasn't been in the past. It wasn't to me either till the other day. Peter was involved in this. Remember when he had the vision of the unclean animals coming down? And he said, no, I'm not going to eat of this. And when he got to the end of it, the obvious thing God was showing him was that he was to call no man common or unclean. That all Gentiles could be included in the church if they repented and served God. So Peter was right in the middle of this argument. Okay? So he felt that it would be a... Uh, What's the term I'm trying to use here, the legal term? A conflict of interest for him to make the decision. Because people say, well, Peter's already, he had this vision and he thinks he's so big here. Uh, he was emotionally involved in the situation of the doctrine that was on the table at the time. And he trusted James. And I think what happened there was that Peter simply recused himself from that Decision. Since he was personally involved, he said, James, I'm going to sit by and I'm going to let you make the decision. And James did. 
And I think that clears up any contradiction that people may have thought was in Scripture about who was in charge. All other examples, and I won't go to all of them, show that Peter was in charge as the physical head of the apostles, the lead apostle, if you will. But in this particular case, since there was, in that sense, a conflict of interest, and some in the ministry might have said, yeah, Peter's loaded it that way because he was involved, he simply recused himself. Now, that's my speculation, and that may not be exactly what happened, but I see no other way to explain it that makes sense in light of the other scriptures where Peter was obviously the lead apostle. <coughs> but that's how doctrine was set in the church. And I already, I think, referred to 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul made, as an apostle, a doctrinal decision and said, This speak I, not the Lord. In other words, he had already quoted what Christ had said. And because of a particular circumstance that Christ had not addressed or talked about, Paul said, I'm making this decision for the churches, and so ordain I it in all the churches. And he said, I think I have the mind of Christ. So he used Scripture, and he made a doctrinal decision, which obviously the Father and the Son accepted and included in Scripture. Some say that Paul didn't change anything. What do you mean he didn't change anything? He said, this is something I'm saying, not something Christ said. It is different, in other words. Why people can't get that, I don't know. There again comes this thing, well, whatever Herbert Armstrong believed about government in 1939 has to be the final word, because that's what God inspired him to believe. Well, he learned a lot after that. Read Mystery of the Ages. He talks about government there a great deal in detail. And that's what he understood later. Did Paul and Peter and James and John, do we have to stick to everything they formerly believed that was once delivered to them? No, they grew in grace and knowledge, and sometimes they made changes. So when we understand more, we make changes. We have to grow in grace and knowledge. We can't sit still. We have to study to show ourselves approved. We have to learn more. We have to figure out what God is saying about everything. So that's the way God makes doctrinal decisions. Again, I say, you cannot find one example in the Bible where it was turned over to the people to vote. And Matthew 18 has to fit in that as well. You handle it on the lowest level possible, that is in terms of numbers, not low people, but lowest terms of numbers. Two people. He who sinned against you and you. That's all. And try to settle it there. If not, you get two or three witnesses. If it's a sin, eyewitnesses to what happened. And take it to them. Otherwise, you might have someone simply there as a witness that you said, and he said, and she said, and he said. But essentially, it means you better have more proof than just somebody's idea that somebody's a sinner. So don't even hear it without at least two witnesses if it's an elder. Two eyewitnesses, not you and your best buddy that agrees with you, even though he wasn't there. 
Then he says, if you can't settle it there, you take it to the church, or, yes, the Greek says, the ecclesia, the called out ones. Who are the called out ones? Everybody in the church is a called out one, but the rest of the Bible (coughs) and the rest of Scripture shows that the ministers were there to make judgments, were there to sort it out, even as Moses did, even as Solomon did with the baby he was going to cut in two, and even as Paul and the other apostles made judgments. Paul did not put it to vote in the Corinthian church with the ecclesia when that man had sinned and there were witnesses to the sin. Because people were accepting of it. It was something in their background in Corinth, which had very little, if any, moral constraints. Those people would have voted to keep him in, even though he's committing incest, it appears. Paul didn't put it to a vote. He says, you mark that man. No equivocation, a decision, a judgment rendered. And that's the way it's handled all through the New Testament, according to these scriptures we have been reading. Let's see, 1 Thessalonians 1, 5. 1 Thessalonians 1, 5. For our gospel came not to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, not mealy mouth, not soft, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. So they came in strength and in power for their good, for their sake, to help them. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. There are people who are anti-government who will say, well, you can't follow men. Where did they get that? They didn't get it from 1 Thessalonians 5 and 6, chapter 1, 5 and 6. It said they were followers of men and of Christ. What did Paul clearly say? Follow me as I follow Christ. And they'll try to use some other word like mimic or whatever. It's just do what we do if we do what Christ did. You can pick your adjective however you want, or adverb in case of follow. But clearly the example is there from Paul in the context, no matter which Greek word you use, that we follow Christ, and I'm sure he uses the same Greek word when he says, follow me, or follow us. So we are to follow as long as it is in a godly direction. If it's not in a godly direction, obviously you don't follow. But we are followers of men as they follow Christ. Isn't that what Paul clearly says? What happened? Why don't they use these verses when they speak against government? 1 Corinthians 9. 
Verse 9. For it is written in the law of Moses. Did I already read this one? Maybe in another place. Uh, Or maybe I just read it to myself. Don't muzzle the mouth of the ox that treads out the corn. Does God take care for oxen? Yes, I did read it. It's another scripture, same example. Or says he it all together for our sakes. For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he that plows should plow in hope, and he that threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. If we have sown to you spiritual things, is it a great thing if we shall reap your carnal things? He's speaking of money here. They were authorized to take money and to live live from it. If others be partakers of this power over you... What? This power over you. This authority to do this, in other words. Are not we rather? Nevertheless, we have not used this power, but suffer all things, lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. There are times when Paul said, I did not take money, I built tents and so on with new people. There are other places he says that he did and that the other ministry did with new people. Sometimes you're very careful what you present to them at the beginning and they learn as they go that the gospel not be hindered. Do you not know that they which minister or serve about holy things live of the things of the temple? Didn't the priesthood in the Old Testament live from the sacrifices and the things from the temple? Yes, they did. And they which wait at the altar are partakers with the altar. Even so, has the Eternal ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel, be supported by the tithes and offerings of the people for the preaching that they do? He says, but I have used none of these things, neither have I written these things, that it should be so done to me. For it were better for me to die than that any man should make my glorying void. Uh, There are other places where he said he did, and he robbed one church to take care of another. We'll probably get to that. So at times he did, at times he didn't, depending on the circumstance. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 34. Speaking here of women and their place in the church. Uh, Verse 34, Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted them to speak. But they are commanded to be under obedience, as also says the law. Does that sound like he was in charge? That he could make that judgment? That he could tell them the way it would be? Or did he say, well, you guys need to vote on whether you have women preaching or not? No, he didn't turn it over to the ecclesia, as people like to use the term. He just told them this is the way it will be. And then I think he goes on down and says that this will be done in all... the Yeah, well, wherever it is, that this is the way it would be. Enough there. <clears throat> 1 Timothy 2, verse 9. 1 Timothy 2. In like manner, now notice this. 
In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broidered hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becomes women professing godliness with good works. Let the women learn in silence with all subjection, for I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. Is this optional? Or is Paul saying this is the way that it will be? Now people will say if you get into certain things, well, you done quit preaching and started meddling. Well, Paul, in this case, was meddling then because he told you how to wear whatever you wear, the attitude you ought to have when you do it. So some people get all upset if we chastise some of the ladies if they happen to come with way too much chest showing or way too much leg or thigh showing or uh, whatever so that it isn't modest. I don't know how high is high and I don't know how low is low. And when hair comes to hair, I don't know how long is long for women and how short is short for men. But the principle is given about clothing and attitude and decoration and so on. So it reaches into every part of our lives, doesn't it? God has something to say about it. Am I supposed to not read those verses? They're part of every word of God, aren't they? So you see, we are given to instruct you even in things that are very personal things. Paul made no bones about it. Second uh, Corinthians 10, verse 8. Second Corinthians 10. Maybe I'm sounding like a broken record, but man, there's lots of these. 10 verse 8. For though I should boast somewhat more of our authority, he says, maybe I should emphasize even more than I have the authority that the ministry has, which the Eternal has given us for edification. So God gave the ministry authority to edify the people. And not for your destruction, I should not be ashamed. It's got to be done for the right reasons, but it's there. That I may not seem as if I would terrify you by letters, for his letters, say they, are weighty and powerful. But his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. So that was one of the things they accused Paul of. He's weak and therefore contemptible. He apparently had some kind of an eye problem that made him look uh, funny and perhaps a bit weird and weak. Uh, Christ left that on him to help keep the people humble, it said. Let such an one think this, that such as we are in word by letters when we are absent, show will we also indeed when we are present. So he says, if you think we're full of authority and power and weighty things by letter, wait until I get there. Remember the place where he said, shall I come to you with great power and authority or in meekness? He said, it's up to you. If you will be humble and obedient, I will come in meekness and a spirit of love. If you're not, I'm going to come in power and strength. Up to you. 
For we dare not make ourselves of the number, or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves, and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. Those who get anti-government and anti-ministry begin to compare themselves and say, we're just as good as you are. I won't argue that. Might even be better. Who knows who will be high in the kingdom of God and who will not? I already know the ministers are going to get judged twice as hard. They might be scrambling for the last chair at musical chairs. That doesn't mean God hasn't put them there to do a job and give them the authority to do so. It is not a question of who's better. It is a matter of whom God has placed to do the teaching and whom he is not. And he said he sets those things where he wants them. And if you don't like it, then maybe you will be found to be fighting God at some point because he said he set those jobs and put people in them. And if you try to put yourself there instead of that one, whoever it is, that is presumption, and that is the same as witchcraft or Satanism in God's view. But we will not boast of things without our measure, but according to the measure of the rule which God has distributed to us. A measure to reach even to you. Wow, time flies when I'm having fun. Uh, I'm getting on down here. Acts 4. Let's pick that one up right quick. I could go on and on. Probably this is enough of these uh, to show us what Scripture says over and over and over and over again that anyone who is anti-government simply doesn't use. It would not be to their advantage to try to prove their point to use it. Acts 4, verse 32. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul, Neither said any of them that ought, that ought of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common, and with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet." They had the power under those circumstances to ask people to sell their houses and turn in everything they had. Now that has been done inadvisedly in the church more than once. And I understand as being done by one leader of a, a group right now. Never in the modern time have we been at a point where this was necessary, where people have been starving to death in the church. But when it came to that, those men had that authority, and that's what people did. And the two, Ananias and Sapphira, next chapter, who did not, God struck dead. Just as he did Korah, and just as he punished Miriam and Aaron and various others in the Bible. Achan. We're talking about an attitude. People who have negative attitudes 
boy, the minute you, you mention Korah or Achan or Baal or any of those, oh, they get excited. You're comparing me to Baal. You're comparing me to Korah. No, I'm not. I'm comparing you to Satan. Duh. Those men had satanic attitudes. Didn't we read about those who disturb the peace? That those who speak negativity, that those that put down and gossip, those are not the fruit of the Spirit of God. They are the fruit or the actions of Satan the devil. So let's get it right down to what it is. Okay? Now I'm not calling anybody names. I'm just telling you what the Scripture says. It's that simple. You can either change your attitude and get in line with God's scriptures or not, if you're of that mindset. Let's see, where am I here? Uh, let me finish this section right quick then. Second uh, Corinthians 11, verse 8. I'll just give you about three or four more real quickly, and then we'll go on to something else. Certainly tomorrow, and when I come back to this subject, I'll, I'll be a, a different direction uh, with some other points oppo uh, as, as opposed to what we've been discussing. Second Corinthians 11, verse 8. I robbed other churches, taking wages of them to do you service. So he said, I took it as my authority to take money from this congregation and transfer it to another congregation because of the need they had. So he had the authority not only to take uh, income, but to move it. Because he was over all those churches, not just one or two or three, and they did not all have their separate autonomy. But he had that authority to use it wherever he felt it was best used or needed. <coughs> and clearly says so. Romans 10, verse 14. How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? On Christ, obviously. And how shall they believe in him of whom, of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Christ was here for a limited time, and he did not try to convert the world when he was here. In fact, he often avoided the multitudes and taught his disciples, especially his apostles, to be, so that they could take the message to the world. So he established right off that he was going to work through men and that the gospel of God and the understanding of the truths of God could not generally be understood without one sent with the truth from God. It can't be done otherwise. And he even says that the gospel shall be preached around the world as a witness, and then the end will come. So, preaching and teaching is something ordained of God. And how shall they preach except they be sent? There are a lot of preachers in the world who don't preach the truth. Therefore, it's worthless because it isn't true. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. 
from Isaiah. But they have not obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? That's Isaiah, first verse of Isaiah 53. Who's believed it? Not very many. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So there have to be those who preach and teach the word of God so that our faith might be strengthened. Is there ever a time that we don't need that? No. We may not need the remedial things. We shouldn't even need to be discussing the subject of government at this point. But there are many throughout the greater church of God, including some of our own, who have listened to some spurious, spurious doctrine, false doctrine, and thought it was new doctrine and new truth. Oh, please. This approach started with Satan and was passed down through ungodly men over and over and over again. And they never use these scriptures we're reading. I've said that before, but hey, it bears emphasis because they don't use them. Second Timothy 1.11 Whereunto I am appointed a preacher, and an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. God appointed him, put him in that job, and he did it. James 3. We've been over this recently, but let's look at it. My brethren, be not many masters or teachers, as it is in the Greek, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. He said, this isn't a job you better look for and want. For in many things we offend everyone. Yes, the ministry does offend people. Paul's ministry offended people. The very fact sometimes you breathe offends someone. Okay? If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man and able also to bridle the whole body. I make mistakes in what I say. I don't always control my tongue properly. I'm not a perfect man. But I have been appointed to this job and ordained to do it, and I try to do it to the best of my ability and with what strength and power and authority God gives me. But I also try very hard not to lord it over anyone, but be a helper of your joy and teach you the things that will cause your relationship to God to improve if you will follow through and do them. That's why I don't get out philosophies and chiropractic sayings, or chiropractic uh, psychological sayings. I preach the Word of God. That's about all we ever discuss, isn't it, the Scripture? That's about it. To see what God says about any and everything. This is one aspect of... the. Scripture that most avoid. I have one more here. I won't turn there. Romans 16, verse 17, where Paul says, Mark them that do these things. He doesn't say, again, like 1 Corinthians 5, take a vote among the people. No, he said, anybody that does the things we're talking about, mark them. Don't have anything to do with them. Point it out. That they're the ones doing it. Now, I'm very slow to do that. 
I'm too slow, according to some, to do that. But Paul had the authority to say that and to direct that. Now, one reason I'm so slow to do it is because I have needed a lot of God's mercy and space and time to repent. Been there, done that. Know what it's all about. And I'm very, very slow to do it. And if I have to do it, I think the elders will attest every time I've had to address an issue like that, I've been very kind and very gentle, very merciful and forgiving if people would at all change their attitude and repent. I have that on record. So I'm slow to do this. But please, if there are any who have the attitudes that we've been reading about of negativity, of gossip, of backbiting, of putting down the ministry, of being in a negative attitude, which is a satanic attitude, I beg of you, change it. Become positive. Become uplifting. Become healers and peacemakers instead of disturbers of the peace. Please. And if you can't do it and you keep causing trouble, you're forcing my hand. I don't want to go there. I don't want to go there at all. Don't make me go there. Please.